This is Guns and Butter. I think the issue concerning the rebels and the so-called opposition is that the rebels, most of them are not even Syrians. They are recruits from Lebanon, Qatar, Iraq, Libya, Saudi Arabia. They're foreign fighters, they're mujahideen, and they are invariably paid mercenaries. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, U.S.-NATO humanitarian intervention in Syria toward a regional war. Michel Chosodovsky is professor of economics and director of the Center for Research on Globalization based in Montreal, Quebec. He is the author of The Globalization of Poverty and the New World Order, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, and America's War on Terrorism. He is co-editor and contributor to a new anthology, The Global Economic Crisis, The Great Depression of the 21st Century. Today we discuss what the destabilization of Syria is really about, the rebels, who they are, who supports and trains them, and where, the Free Syrian Army, the role of the United Nations, the Islamization of the Middle East as an intelligence operation, the role of Israel, the effect of sanctions, the responsibility to protect, and media disinformation. Michel Chosodovsky, welcome. Delighted to be on the program. Michel, Western media is filled with stories of the latest bloody massacres in homes, Hula, and other places. The Syrian military is usually accused of both shelling a neighborhood and at the same time stabbing civilian families. Is this a contradiction? Who is carrying out the sectarian killings and atrocities in Syria? What does the evidence reveal? The evidence reveals unequivocally that these massacres are committed by the U.S. NATO-sponsored opposition, the Free Syrian Army. We now have mainstream reports from uh, the Frankfurt Allgemeine Zeitung, one of Germany's largest newspapers uh, with a very large circulation. We also have reports from Der Spiegel uh, to the effect that these killings were perpetrated by mercenaries and foreign militia. And we also have evidence that these foreign militia were trained, supported, by the Western Military Alliance. So we're dealing with um, a very cynical and diabolical project, uh, which uh, General Tommy Franks, who was commander uh, of U.S. forces during the invasion of Iraq, he was central command commander, what he describes this as is a massive casualty-producing event. And the massive casualty-producing event in U.S. military doctrine means that you go in and you quite deliberately kill civilians, and then you blame the enemy for the casualties with a view to ultimately justifying a military agenda or war. And uh, the model for this 
diabolical project uh, is contained in Operation Northwoods, a 1962 uh, secret plan of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to um, trigger atrocities as well as killings in the Miami Cuban community to create, I quote, a helpful wave of indignation in U.S. newspapers, unquote, and then blame the killings on Fidel Castro um, and use the killings as a humanitarian pretext to invade Cuba or to wage a war on Cuba. That project was never carried out. Uh, JFK uh, opposed the plan, and so did uh, Defense Secretary Robert McNamara at the time. But the project is on record, and there have been many uh, instances, particularly in the post-9-11 uh, era, to the fact that killing of civilians is used and is triggered by covert operations, and then you use that to justify a war on terrorism or, or certain military actions. 9-11 has that rationale as well. 9-11 was a massive casualty-producing event of significant scale, and it was used to invade Afghanistan, even though there was no evidence to the fact that Afghanistan as a nation-state or the Afghan government was involved in the 9-11 attacks. Your article, Confronting Iran, Protecting Israel, the Real Reason for America's War on Syria, examines an article in this month's uh, foreign policy magazine by former Clinton State Department official James P. Rubin, The Real Reason to Intervene in Syria. What is R2P, that is the, quote, right to protect, and how is it being used to justify a possible Western military intervention in Syria? Well, that's precisely it. Um, I think the article by James P. Rubin uh, acknowledges that, in fact, the humanitarian issue is, is secondary. And, in fact, the humanitarian issue uh, is not the real reason for uh, you know, coming to the rescue of the Syrian people. Uh, James Rubin, right from the outset, says the real reason is to weaken Iran and to protect Israel. And uh, this is something which is well understood. Uh, it's a war of conquest. Uh, it is uh, implemented with a view to uh, establishing an American sphere of influence throughout the entire region. It's a battle for oil. And um, I don't think that uh, the United States uh, government uh, has any concern about the, you know, the human rights of the Syrian people um, but they are prepared to go in and kill people by setting loose their foot soldiers of the Syria Free Army, killing civilians, and then using those killings to blame the government and then uh, seek uh, a pretext 
within the confines of the United Nations Security Council to go in and invade a, a sovereign country. Now, uh, at this stage, there are indications from the State Department and also from the Pentagon that attacking Syria with the support of the United Nations Security Council uh, may be dropped in favor of an action outside the mandate of the United Nations. And this was made clear by the statement of uh, U.S. Ambassador uh, to the United Nations, Susan Rice, uh, where she said, yes, the most probable and worst-case scenario is that we will sidetrack the U.N. They did it in 2003. Um, they had opposition in 2003 from France on a you know, on an action against Iraq. Uh, there was a lot more anti-war movement at that time opposing an invasion of Iraq. Today, uh, public opinion is, is more or less inactive, mute, with regard to the war. The anti-war movement hasn't taken a stance. Many people in that so-called anti-war movement believe that responsibility to protect is a, a worthwhile objective. Uh, what is standing in the way of, an, of a military action uh, in Syria, which could lead to a regional war extending from the eastern Mediterranean to, the, to Central Asia and the border of China, China's western frontier, well, the obstacle for the United States is Russia and China. Uh, but that does not signify that they will will simply go along with a with a Russian veto in the UN, and and that was that's very clear in some of these foreign policy reports, uh, including that of James C. Rubin, saying, well, the Russians will never accept, so why bother with the United Nations? Let's do it, let's do it outside the realm of the United Nations. No concern with uh, the issue of international law. Uh, although that war is illegal, whether it's carried out within uh, the mandate of the UN or outside the mandate of, of the UN, it's, it, it's a war of aggression. But what is far more diabolical is the, is the way the information is being conveyed to the broader public, namely um, a government committing atrocities against its own people when those atrocities have been ordered, explicitly ordered, by the Western Military Alliance. And that evidence is absolutely crystal clear today. Uh, so they kill people, they blame it on the government, and then they say, we're going to invade you. Uh, the war crimes are committed, by the, are committed by the leaders of the Western Military Alliance. So we're dealing with the criminalization of the state. We're dealing with a very diabolical agenda where everything is, is allowed, from killing civilians and then using fake images. Uh, you know, uh, we have the case of the BBC using body bags of 2003 and then blaming it on the Syrian government when, in fact, that picture was uh, pertained to Iraq and not to Syria. Um, this is routine in the Western media. Uh, you, you take images, you, you fiddle them, you take images from archives, uh, and you, uh, you, you provide an extremely biased report 
of what is actually going on. Uh, this is war propaganda. Uh, war propaganda is a crime against humanity. It's illegal under international law. It's a criminal offense. Um, and I think that what is required is that the anti-war movement start, start targeting the Western media. They should target the governments as well, but the Western media, without the Western media, this war agenda would not hold. It would collapse like a deck of cards. Uh, if people were informed as to what is actually going on, that the atrocities are being committed by uh, terrorists, which are in turn supported by the Western Military Alliance, trained, financed, and that this is a diabolical and criminal project, we would all be up in arms against our governments, telling them to stop the war. So the, the, the obstacle is the Western media. The governments need the Western media. We must target the Western media and close them down. And uh, lying is a criminal offense, so that we, we also have a judicial um, instrument we can sue the Western media for lying. It is a criminal offense for them to deliberately distort information and support a military agenda. Now, that includes a bit of the uh, progressive media as well, doesn't it? Well, it does, up to a point, because, uh, and, and we might ask ourselves, uh, who is this progressive media? We have progressive media which celebrate uh, the victory of NATO in, um, in Libya, saying it's a renaissance. We have progressive media, uh, which uh, says that the government of Syria is committing atrocities. Um, we, we have a, a Western progressive media, which uh, supports responsibility to protect. Now, is this out of ignorance, or is this, uh, is this uh, simply because this progressive media has been infiltrated, it's funded by foundations, and so on? These are important questions as well. But I think our thrust at this stage uh, must go uh, against those who spread media disinformation, which is still the corporate media. Now, I've noticed that, that um, many so-called progressive media are, in fact pretty much an appendage of the corporate media. And they, they have a mix of, of independent media and, and mainstream media in their respective uh, uh, website. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, U.S.-NATO humanitarian intervention in Syria toward a regional war. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What does the alliance between Iran, Syria, Hezbollah, and Hamas have to do with the current fighting in Syria? Well, this is not... I wouldn't say that this is a, an, an alliance. Um, uh, Iran and Syria... Uh, have supported the Palestinian cause from from day one, okay? uh, and um, there are lots of uh, refugees, Palestinian refugees in Syria. Um, 
whatever one's position regarding the Syrian government, it has been supportive of the Palestinian cause, and so has Iran. And I, I think that that tacit alliance stands in the way of the interests of both the United States and Israel in the region, and of Turkey up to a point, because Turkey and Israel have signed uh, a military cooperation agreement that goes back to the to the 1990s. It's it's a long-standing um, relationship between Turkey and Israel. How would the fall of Bashar al-Assad in Syria affect the balance of power in the Middle East? Well, I, I think that if regime change is implemented, either through military intervention or otherwise, uh, we would see the emergence of a U.S. proxy state, perhaps modeled on, on the Gulf states, you know, the Emirates or Saudi Arabia. Um, I don't see that happening within the immediate future. And certainly I don't see that happening um, outside the conduct of a major military operation directed against Syria. In, in, in other words, uh, at this stage, that government is on the whole reasonably consistent and coherent. It's not to say that if a war is launched, it won't, it won't tumble, it could. But um, what the United States has in mind, um, as far as perhaps longer-term scenarios are, are concerned, is the replacement of um, secular government uh, with, with a more sectarian-type Islamist government, um, in which um, religious groups dominate the political spectrum and uh, that, in fact, is the outcome of the Arab Spring in, in Egypt. And it was an outcome which was planned right from the outset. The Muslim Brotherhood in, in Egypt has been an instrument of British intelligence going back to the, to the 1950s. So uh, we must understand that, of course, if that government in Syria is, is uh, displaced, uh, this means that that whole region, of course, is, is likely to disintegrate and Syria becomes, Syria potentially could become a new Iraq or a new Libya with a sectarian government um, installed by, uh, by the Western military alliance. What are the economic sanctions that have been placed on Syria and how are they affecting the country? Well, the economic sanctions are characterized by the freezing of assets. That's something which has already taken place. Um, there have been trade sanctions as well. Um, more generally, this, what this does is it destabilizes the economy. Uh, it um, it uh, impoverishes people, and, it, of course, it, it also creates animosity potentially creates animosity against the government because people blame the government for worsening conditions. This is not uh, something which is uh, necessarily new. Uh, when I was in Syria early last year, 
before uh, uh, these events unfolded, it was clear that the, the country is suffering or was suffering from the imposition of IMF reforms, um, you know, uh, uh, very much a neoliberal perspective in, in economic policy, which had been imposed from the outside. But now it is um, it's being subjected to sanctions, which could also block the channels of international trade, uh, the freezing of assets. Um, this is um, something which is um, being used with a view to eventually uh, destabilizing Syria as a, as a nation state. One of my first articles was brought out in May. I, I, I was traveling. I left Syria pretty much on the 1st of March, actually. I was in Syria for almost two months. But uh, I, wasn't, I, was, I was taking Arabic uh, lessons, so uh, uh, I didn't have time really to, to get into examining what was going on. But nothing had happened by early March. And uh, but I did suspect when the ambassador was appointed that something was cooking, because I knew the profile of Robert Stephen Ford, and and I was in Damascus when, when uh, he was appointed. Well, that's interesting. What is his background? Well, that that's the whole Negroponte. Uh, you know, it's the Negroponte uh, death squadrons, the Salvador option. Now. Uh, Robert Stephen Ford was part of the Negroponte team in Iraq, okay? And uh, in 2004-2005, but specifically in 2005, uh, upon the arrival of Robert Stephen Ford, they put together the, you know, the whole uh, terrorist uh, ideology as well as the death squadrons and the, the killings, the suicide bombs and so on. All that was really orchestrated by Negroponte, modeled on on the death squadrons of the of uh, you know Salvador and Honduras, and he's well known to have put those together in Honduras. Um, and uh, when he was appointed ambassador to to Iraq, uh, he had a specific mandate. He wasn't even going to finish his term there because you don't appoint an ambassador for one year, okay? He was director of national intelligence, which was a very, very senior position, and he was sent to Iraq for a very specific purpose, was to set up the death squadrons. And Robert Stephen Ford was part of that team. In fact, he was probably even more important than Negroponte because, you know, he, he knows the region, he speaks Arabic, uh, he speaks Turkish, uh, and Negroponte doesn't, okay? So Negroponte needed somebody to make the contacts with with uh, with different groups inside Iraq to precipitate the sectarian violence, which that was his project, to precipitate sectarian violence. Um, so that that's another dimension. Uh, How is the conflict in Syria different than what transpired in Libya? basically in terms of how the Western powers are going to respond. You talk about that the rebels aren't unified, they don't hold territory, the Arab League hasn't called for an intervention, and, of course, that Russia is opposed. The characteristic of these rebels maybe has to be addressed. Um, uh, I think the issue concerning the rebels and the so-called opposition is that the rebels, most of them are not even Syrians. 
They are recruits from Lebanon, Qatar, Iraq, Libya, Saudi Arabia. They're foreign fighters. They're mujahideen. And they are invariably paid mercenaries. Uh, so they come into Syria as foreign fighters under the, you know, under the banner of the Free Syrian Army, when in fact a large contingent of those fighters are in fact uh, foreign nationals. And this corresponds very much to the model of recruitment of terrorists uh, used, uh, first of all, used in Afghanistan in the heyday of the Soviet-Afghan War, where you recruit jihadist uh, elements, al-Qaeda, and then you send them to the war theater uh, and you set them loose. They're the foot soldiers. Uh, now, in Libya, uh, the foot soldiers of NATO were al-Qaeda uh, mercenaries, many of whom were not uh, Libyans. There were some Libyans. There was the Libya Islamic Fighting Group, um, and that Libya Islamic Fighting Group was trained by the CIA in, in Pakistan and Afghanistan. Uh, in a bitter irony, the, one of the major military leaders of the Libya Islamic Fighting Group is now in Syria. He's been transferred. His contract with NATO ended, and now he's been relocated to a new war theater. So that that is the model. You train Mujahideen, uh, and that training of Mujahideen is done with the coordination of NATO, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar. Uh, and that is well documented. And then you, uh, you set them loose inside Syrian territory where, where they develop an insurrection. Uh, they are supplied and armed uh, by various countries of the Western Military Alliance. In this particular case, uh, Turkey supplies them from the north. Uh, there's influx of special forces uh, from Western countries. Uh, French parachutistes, going back several months back, uh, quite a number of French parachutistes, which are special forces, uh, were arrested and uh, this was before the French elections. It was hushed up both by Damascus and Paris, and these uh, special forces were repatriated to France. Uh, so that the evidence points to the fact that there are special forces within uh, the ranks of the Free Syrian Army. Invariably, they're covert, uh, but they're playing uh, an important role. Uh, which means, in effect, that we already have foreign forces on the ground inside Syria. Namely, the war against Syria has already started. And we recall that, that in Libya we had a similar situation where British special forces were on the ground training the Libya Islamic Fighting Group, which were the foot soldiers of NATO in the, you know, in the first uh, months of, of the war. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, U.S.-NATO Humanitarian Intervention in Syria, Toward a Regional War. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. 
Now, you spoke about media disinformation with regard to the violence in Syria. You said that that there's a popular misconception that the Syrian uh, so-called uprising began nonviolently with a real political movement against the uh, Syrian government and then became an armed conflict. So is it is it the case then that there really wasn't a large political movement against the Syrian government? There is significant opposition within Syria against uh, against the government of Bashar al-Assad, as there is opposition to any kind of administration in any country on earth. I mean, look at Europe and, and, and the United States. Um, and there's also opposition because this government has been controlled by the Alawite uh, for quite a number of years. Um, but it is not that opposition within Syrian civil society which was active in promoting these events. And uh, indeed, many uh, observers of Syria have said, oh, it started up as a protest movement in the southern city of Dara, and then it eventually it extended to other cities, uh, Aleppo, Homs, and so on. That is an incorrect and biased interpretation of what actually happened. In mid-March of 2011, and I followed these events very carefully, there was an armed insurrection in Dara, which is a small city on the border with Jordan. It's about 10 kilometers from the Jordanian border. It has a population of something like 45,000 people. Now, anybody who has an understanding of protest movements, let's say, e.g., the United States, uh, knows that those protest movements, uh, they, they take place in big cities, Washington, New York, but not Plattsburgh, New York, okay? Plattsburgh, New York is to the United States what Dara is to Syria. It's a sleepy border town. But it's also very important because people come in from Jordan, uh, and that border is, is a very open border. People go back and forth. The Lebanese um, who come in from the, from the Beirut, from the Beirut-Damascus road, they enter into Syria. They don't even need a passport because they're considered Syrian nationals. Uh, what happened on day one was the incursion of foreign uh, fighters. They were snipers, but they were also involved in acts of arson. And what is revealing in the Israeli and Lebanese press, the reports on casualties indicated that there were more deaths of police than there were of so-called demonstrators, which indicated, first of all, that there was an exchange of gunfire between the so-called demonstrators and the police, uh, and that the Syrian authorities were taken totally by surprise. Now, um, there was no actual protest movement in Dara. Um, if there had been a protest movement in Dara, you would have seen buses coming in from Damascus. That didn't happen. Okay, 
what you had was the incursion of foreign gunmen crossing the border and starting acts of terrorism, killing civilians as well as killing police. And then again, in the logic uh, of this cynical, diabolical, massive casualty producing event uh, uh, dogma of the, of the U.S. military, then blaming the government for the civilian deaths. But these snipers were uh, foreign fighters. They came in and they started killing people. And if you see some of the Western reports, they'll say that the snipers were government agents killing civilians. Um, but uh, if you read the Israeli reports, which are not particularly pro-Syrian, uh, they acknowledge the fact that the police casualties were higher than the, than, than the, the civilian, so-called civilian casualties. And most of those were, uh, were the result of crossfire between the snipers and the, uh, and the government forces. So from day one, it was an insurrection, and it was, a, it was characterized by terrorist elements, um, many of which are similar to those committing the atrocities in, in, in Hula more recently. Uh, the insurrection gained in significance. Uh, it then uh, spread to larger cities, but uh, it was part of a plan this insurrection is part of a very carefully designed plan uh, to uh, create havoc within Syria, destabilize the country as a nation state, and ultimately uh, precipitate the demise of the, of the Bashar al-Assad government. And where are the armed rebels trained, and by whom? The armed rebels are trained... Uh, and we have evidence to that effect. They're trained in Saudi Arabia and Qatar. Uh, I, I've seen reports to the fact that Turkey, in coordination with NATO headquarters in Brussels, and these are Israeli intelligence reports, are recruiting foreign fighters. Uh, it's uh, the main coordinating body uh, would be, in this case, the Turkish military command. So I, I would suspect, and that's confirmed by, uh, by these reports, that, that the rebels are trained in Turkey and the incursions from Turkey, and they're also trained in the Gulf states, uh, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, uh, where you have quite a number of military bases and training camps uh, and then you have also mercenaries sent in from other countries like Iraq and, and Libya. And, and again, these are CIA-sponsored uh, uh, terrorist organizations. We could call them al-Qaeda-affiliated organizations. So that uh, uh, the, the model of intervention is very similar to what we have seen in other parts of the world where, uh, where the United States uses al-Qaeda-affiliated um, uh, militia as their foot soldiers to commit terrorist acts uh, with a view to justifying a, a military agenda. What role is the United Nations playing in Syria, and what do you think of Kofi Annan's peace plan and these uh, observers? Well, I think that Kofi Annan's peace plan was intended to fail right from the outset, uh, because immediately following its adoption, 
they uh, started blaming the government for the atrocities. Uh, and I think that, in effect, I would say that both Kofi Annan as well as, as Ban Ki-moon, the Secretary General of the United Nations, are complicit in, the, in this agenda. They, uh, they are informed, or they must have information to the fact that the government is not involved in these killings, but nonetheless they accept the orders of the Western military alliance. Uh, they are not exercising their role as, um, you know, as an international body, within an international body. Uh, they condemn, if you look at the, the United Nations Human Rights Commission in Geneva, immediately, following the, the events in Hula, uh, the day after, without the conduct of investigation, they, they start accusing, they accuse uh, the Syrian government of committing atrocities, and then they call for sanctions by the, the United Nations Security Council. So the UN, the UN is in violation of its charter because it is quite deliberately supporting a criminal agenda. Uh, and this is very serious because there's no independent voice in the United Nations Security Council. Um, there's no independent voice at the top echelons of the United Nations Secretariat. Okay, the, in other words, the international civil servants who are appointed uh, by the UN, these people constitute the mouthpiece for the U.S. State Department and, and NATO, ultimately. And it's revealing also that Kofi Annan, uh, 10 years back, was instrumental in um, sealing an agreement between NATO and the United Nations. Uh, in other words, of granting a, a de facto mandate to NATO as a, peace, as a peacekeeping or peacemaking entity. And there we, we saw at the Chicago summit, how the Secretary General of, of NATO, Rasmussen, uh, upheld this notion that NATO uh, is there um, to implement world peace uh, as, a, as some kind of anti-war type of entity, when in fact uh, it is doing exactly the opposite. So there again, it's twisting realities upside down. It's, it's presenting... Uh, the warmongers as peacemakers. Uh, it is upholding NATO as a humanitarian body when, in fact, it's a military entity. Uh, it's uh, even giving, uh, you know, it's even granting some legitimacy to the bombs which are being launched on countries and saying that these are peacemaking bombs. Uh, I recall that, that, that when we were covering the war in Libya, the number of strike sorties um, and those figures were published by NATO, was of the order of 11,000 strike sorties. Now, 11,000 strike sorties, these are jet fighters, um, multiply that by the number of missiles and bombs on the aircraft, and then you can see more or less what kind of, of impact that implies. It's 50,000, 60,000 bombs launched on a country of six, six and a half million people. Well, that is a crime against humanity. And then the Western media says, no, there haven't been any civilian casualties. Uh, so it, it's a camouflage of, uh, of war crimes. 
It's presenting and upholding NATO as a humanitarian body, and the United Nations is complicit in, the, in, that, in that agenda. And it has been complicit uh, for quite a number of years because it has also upheld, um, tacitly upheld, the wars against Afghanistan and Iraq, not to mention Yugoslavia. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, U.S.-NATO humanitarian intervention in Syria toward a regional war. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, in terms of the future of Syria, what do you think is the likelihood of a full-scale Western uh say, bombing attack, as opposed to this whole operation falling apart. You mentioned uh, in the very beginning of our discussion that a lot of this information about what's really going on is coming out, at least in the German press now. How, how do you see future events unfolding? It's very difficult at this stage to make predictions as to what might happen in the months ahead. The Western Military Alliance has various, um, uh, you know, scenarios. Um, uh, I can say with certainty that uh, the United States and its allies are at an advanced state of readiness. Um, And that, in fact, was made crystal clear by statements of, of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Martin Dempsey, uh, told reporters that, um, you know, that if, if Obama needed a war, we, we could put a war together. Uh, and I quote him, I can build you a plan and I know how many divisions, I know how many air wings it takes. Okay? So that Dempsey is contemplating military action. Uh, those war plans are an advanced state of readiness, and what they are awaiting is the is the go ahead from uh, from the government or from the the decision makers. The military never decides on war. The wars are always decided by civilians. So that who is going to to decide on war? Uh, in other words, it it will be the Obama administration plus the power groups behind the Obama administration. And bear in mind that, that we are at the, at the crossroads of a major economic and social crisis, perhaps the most serious economic and social crisis in world history, where we don't see any kind of solution, uh, where uh, people are being uh, impoverished in countries which had achieved a relatively high standard of living, I'm talking about Western Europe, where the welfare state is being dismantled, where 50% of, of people uh, leaving colleges and universities are unemployed, I'm talking about Greece. I mean, this is a situation, uh, the social situation in the Western world, the impoverishment of, of developing countries um, has reached a level unprecedented level, you know, where, where there's a disruption in the whole fabric of, of Western society, of the, of the economic underpinnings. So perhaps what they want is a war 
to dissipate, to divert attention. Uh, war and globalization go hand in hand, and, and this economic and social crisis is not something which is separate from the military agenda and vice versa. Um, but it's very difficult to say uh, if and when um, a military operation will be implemented. I suspect that uh, a major theater war in the Middle East directed against Syria and, and uh, Syria's allies is not something which will emerge overnight. And I suspect that this, uh, this undeclared war of Western special forces and, uh, and uh, armed mercenaries and atrocities that this will be ongoing uh, for some time uh, with a view to, to ultimately weakening uh, the, the Syrian government and destabilizing Syria as a nation state. This may be the course that, that the Western military alliance has chosen. It's, uh, it's using the unconventional um, instruments of warfare, infiltration, special forces, terrorist groups, sanctions, and uh, media disinformation, uh, blockades, uh, with a view to eventually uh, pushing the country down on its knees um, rather than simply sending in uh, you know sending in the the fighter jets and bombing uh, bombing the country uh, the geography of Syria is very different to that of libya uh, you're you're in a country which is really at the hub of of the Middle East it has borders with Turkey it has borders with Israel had borders with Iraq, um, not far off is Iran, Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia. Um, it's, it occupies a strategic position in the eastern Mediterranean. You have a Russian naval base in Tartus in southern Syria. Um, and I think that Western military planners are acutely aware that a theater war against uh, Syria would lead immediately to escalation to the extent that that the various war theaters afghanistan uh iraq not to mention palestine that would flare up and and you wouldn't be able to distinguish between separate war theaters the whole region would be would be affected and um they're acutely aware of that they've done their simulations and so on what would happen if we invade Syria? Will Iran respond? What will Hezbollah do? And so on and so forth. Israel inevitably would be involved if there's a theater war on Syria. Um, now, knowing the logic of military planning, they may want precisely to initiate a regional war. They know perfectly well if they initiate a theater war on Syria, the whole region flares up. And uh, with the possibility that other countries would get involved, particularly Iran and possibly even Russia and China. So that, uh, that is the scenario. It's a very dangerous scenario. Um, but at the same time, without being privy to what is decided behind closed doors, um, it's, it's not possible at this stage to, to say how this crisis will, will evolve. I should mention another aspect. Um, there's a 
symbiotic relationship between military action in the Middle East and the chronology of military action in the Middle East on the one hand, and speculative movements on the stock exchanges, the energy markets, and the currency markets. In other words, if, if the handlers of this war, namely the, the, you know, the financial establishment, the oil companies, uh, and the speculators have advanced knowledge of when the war is going to occur and what its likely consequence will be on financial markets, there's a lot of money that can be made um, by speculating uh, in favor of a war, particularly when you have inside information as to when the war will actually occur or if the war will occur. And this is something which I think uh, financial analysts are fully aware of. Uh, and, and we mustn't minimize the fact that behind this war, you have some very powerful financial interests. It's not accidental that Timothy Geithner, the, the Secretary of the Treasury, really represents, he's a former official of, of the New York Federal Reserve Bank, uh, you know, he really represents the financial establishment that he is now uh, joining uh, Hillary Clinton in demanding, um, you know, demanding action within the United Nations Security Council and pressuring Syria, um, you know, pressuring Syria to, to come to terms with the so-called international community. Behind this war are very powerful uh, interests. Uh, financial interests, uh, or the oil economy, but of course also the the so-called defense contractors, the people who produce the weapons. Uh, what we 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 call them defense contractors, but essentially it's a war economy, and that war economy also plays a role as a lobby group. Um, it decides when the wars occur. And as some of your articles have pointed out. Syria is really the only foothold that Russia and Iran have in the Middle East. Syria is it, right? Well, that's uh, that's uh, correct. Uh, uh, Syria is one of the last uh, secular Arab states in the in in the Middle East. Uh, whatever one's uh, viewpoint regarding the Syrian government, this is a, a secular. Arab society. Uh, it has uh, maintained its independence in relation to Western encroachment. And if, if we look at the, the map today, uh, particularly in the wake of the fall of, of the government of Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, uh, all these countries are virtually now uh, under the mantle of, of the Western military alliance, but particularly the United States. And, and, and we don't really have an independent voice in the Arab world anymore. Uh, the, the objective is to, is to uh, implement uh, regime change and install uh, governments which are similar to those of the Gulf states or Saudi Arabia. In some cases, they might be different, but we see that Islamism is a very Islamism is uh, is an instrument of U.S. intelligence. It has been right from the outset in Afghanistan. 
we have a tendency to discuss Islamism as a religious uh, construct, but it's not a religious construct. In, in the geopolitical context, Islamism has been fomented, has been used, has been financed with a view to destabilizing uh, independent secular governments. And uh, uh, it would never exist in its, in, in its present-day form without uh, support, U.S. support to the Wahhabi movements, to the Salafists, uh, to uh, extremism within Islam, uh, had it not been uh, for these covert operations, which support, they support these sectarian movements. At the same time, they support the military component attached to uh, Islamism, namely al-Qaeda or al-Qaeda-affiliated bodies, all of which are created by the CIA. That we should be clear on, so that um, they become an instrument. Islamism uh, as an instrument of intervention and destabilization is a very powerful tool in the hands of the Western military alliance. And we can go back in history to Afghanistan. Afghanistan in the 70s was a, was a secular society. Um, the rights of women were, uh, were developed. They were more advanced than many of the neighboring countries in the region. And what, what was involved in, in, uh, in U.S. support right from 1979, uh, U.S. support to the Mujahideen, uh, and subsequently to the Taliban, was to destabilize a secular Muslim country and, and spearhead extremists into the seat of government. And that is precisely what they've done in one form or another in many countries in the Middle East. Either you have Emirates, or you have the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, or you have, uh, you know, you have a situation, even Iran in some regards, uh, is is the product of U.S. Uh, uh, of U.S. covert operations, because um, uh, Iran was to become a, a progressive secular uh, democracy uh, following the, the unseating of uh, of the Shah in 1979. And what happened is that uh, the United States, through covert operations, uh, encouraged the return of uh, Ayatollah Khomeini and the installation of an Islamic Republic. That was a covert operation. We know that um, as it stands today. The objective of the Western uh, military alliance and Israel throughout the Middle East was to shunt the development of secular governments uh, and, uh, and use uh, sectarian divisions to install uh, governments which would be of a sectarian nature. And uh, uh, that is certainly true now in most of the countries of North Africa, uh, including, um, well, including uh, Tunisia and Algeria now. Uh, we, we see a definite movement towards Islamism, certainly in Turkey. And the model is, is ultimately uh, to install a U.S. proxy regime uh, which will serve uh, American interests in the Middle East. We are at a very, very serious crossroads now. It, it could well be World War III, because the, the ultimate targets are not Syria. 
It's not Syria. It's it's Iran, China, and Russia. Okay, and and uh, they want to break Russia and China's um, determination uh, and opposition to this military agenda in the Security Council with a view to eventually going after those countries in a subsequent military operation. They're there to weaken uh, their rivals uh, of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, mainly China and Russia. Iran has observer status. Michel Chosodovsky, thank you very much. The uh, lives will be on the program. been speaking with Michelle Chosodovsky. Today's show has been U.S.-NATO Humanitarian Intervention in Syria Toward a Regional War. Michelle Chosodovsky is director of the Center for Research on Globalization based in Montreal, Quebec. The global research website, globalresearch.ca, publishes news articles, commentary, background research and analysis on a broad range of issues. Michelle Chosodovsky is the author of The Globalization of Poverty and the New World Order, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, and America's War on Terrorism, as well as numerous articles. He is a co-editor and contributor to a new anthology, The Global Economic Crisis, The Great Depression of the 21st Century. Visit the Center for Research on Globalization website at www.globalresearch.ca. That's globalresearch.ca. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaramako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. That's G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher. And be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what decides yourself for peace. Give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me?